0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Yeah, history. This Wednesday marks the 60th anniversary of the Beatles' historic arrival in New York City. Wow, that was a defining moment. in February 1964, that ignited Beatlemania right across America. 3,000 screaming teenagers are at New York's Kennedy Airport to greet, you guessed it, the Beatles. This rock and roll group has taken over as the kingpins of musical appreciation among the younger element. (laughs) The younger element, I love it. Meanwhile, of course, Australia witnessed its own Beatlemania surge in February 1964 because it was amplified by the announcement in late January of the Beatles' upcoming tour of Australia and New Zealand in June. Well, negotiations led to a groundbreaking 20-concert tour across Australia, including Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, And by February 1964, everybody wanted the Beatles, none more so than Adelaide, a city not on the original tour itinerary. By the way, the events of February and March not only marked a pivotal moment in the Beatles' career, but also left, of course, a massive mark on Australian history. They dominated the charts in Australia during this week uh, with all of these tracks in the top ten. So please love me There wasn't much room for anybody else, I can tell you. Joining us to reflect on why February 1964 was such an important month for the Beatles in Australia is Beatles historian Greg Armstrong. Greg, g'day. Welcome to Nightlife. Oh, g'day. Philip, how are you going? Um, Welcome to, uh, back to
0: 2024.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it's terrific to be back in, back, uh, back in the chair again. Can Tell us why February 1964 is considered such an important month, uh, Well, oh, gee, particularly you know, regarding the Beatles. There's
0: so many... Aspects to the Beatles' career, and, mm. a, and they're very much like it. I need you can peel it and keep finding things underneath. Yeah. I mean, in America, the Beatles arrived at the right time, incredibly at the right time. Obviously, they had a, a cloud hanging over them with the death of JFK, assassinated only in November 63. That's right. And, you know, um they didn't know about the Beatles even then. And then... I Want to Hold Your Hand was issued late in um, December 63, a little bit ahead of time. It was originally due to be released in January 64, but the, the groundswell of the Beatles, which had swept through England, you know, and Europe became, knew about the Beatles. Australia knew about the Beatles. And by late in 63, America started to hear about the Beatles and it just took off like wildfire. So the fact that, I want to hold your hand came out out of the blue, and yeah. you know the Beatles didn't sound like anything else. We already knew that, but this, this
1: is the thing, saying. though. Like, what was it about the song? Because after all, Americans had rock and roll by this stage; uh, they well, knew, this is, they knew yeah. about that. I mean, and guitar bands were not unknown, surely.
0: No, that's right. The, the, I think it's the sound. You know, they yeah. the, they never knew of this sort of Liverpool sound. A British group had never really impacted the American yeah. charts before. Of- yeah. Not at this level. And you might have had one or two one-offs, if you like. Uh, Cliff Richard here and there. Uh, this this sound, for everybody that I've spoken to in my research, even Back to Love Me Do and Please Please Me, sounds that they never heard on a record before because we were hearing rock and roll. We were hearing surf music. We mm. were hearing, you know, Tamla and Motown and, and, and Doo-Wop and all sorts of things, you know, particularly in Australia, we're all being a bit behind the times. We hadn't joined the 1960s yet, <laughs> but America was more about your, um, you know, your soul music and your, your, your Beach Boys records, that type of thing. The Beatles didn't sound like anything that America had had before. No, they, they just... didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so no, they didn't. February 1964, by the time the Beatles hit America, uh, it was the perfect storm. The place went
1: know? nuts. I mean, it's not, totally. it's, it's it, the place went totally nuts. Uh, yeah. I mean, their tour negotiations were a big deal. Tell us about that. What that what, what made that so groundbreaking and how it affected the tour?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for the US, and it wasn't a tour as such, uh, Philip. It, what happened was they went to the America, and it was really called the first US visit. It, it was a promotional visit, if you like. Mm. They were in 1963. They took over the UK. You know, if we cast our mind back to February 1963, a whole year before the Beatles hit America, they were playing in um, uh, in Yorkshire on their first nationwide tour, and they were bottom of the bill to a 16-year-old girl called Helen Shapiro. Mm-hmm. So that's a year before, <laughs> and they had just started to, they only had one single, Love Me Do. They hadn't re- released Please Please Me yet or they had just released it I should say in February and they hadn't yet recorded their debut album please please me so all of these things were yet to happen and in the space of 1963 they did those things they released their first lp they had from me to you they had she loves you and you know they they absolutely took over the united kingdom they took over the um they took over europe because Europe were close and they heard about the Beatles and Australia heard about the Beatles. We were negotiating and we were getting records in our charts in July '63. From ETU was number three on the 2SM top, top 100 chart in July the 5th, 1963. The very day that Ken Brodziak is in London negotiating to bring the Beatles to Australia a year later. Oh, I
1: love this story. Tell us this story yeah. because this is a great story actually because I don't think that this would happen today uh, well, I, I right. mean, may, I don't know, maybe it would end up in the courts and there'd be lawyers, you know, <laughs> lawyers at, uh, at at either side of the drum kit. But, yeah. but tell us about well, Ken Brodziak and, and Dick Lean and how they got the Beatles to Australia anyway.
0: Absolutely. And it, and it's a much richer story than we've ever, ever been told before. Now, obviously, Ken Brodziak was an entrepreneur. Hmm. He would go and book artists to come through to Australia, He'd go overseas, you know, once every two years and book up a group of acts to come over the next year. But Ken was very traditional. He was getting a lot of vaudeville acts, you know, Black and White Minstrel Show, Jeannie Crooper, you know, the Scots Guard Band, all a lot of traditional stuff, pretty much 50s stuff, if you like. And Dick Lean was heading up Stadiums Proprietary Limited and and Ken Broziak at Aztec Services and, and stadiums were joining forces to co-promote bands because stadiums own... Festival Hall in Melbourne, they own the Sydney Stadium, they own the Festival Hall up in Brisbane. So stadiums wanted to bring acts and fill their halls, Hmm. and Ken Brodziak wanted to bring acts. So it was a perfect situation, but it was really at um, two prongs. Dick Lean wanted to bring something more contemporary in for the kids, as he called it, the teenage movement. (laughs) <laughs> it's quite a complicated story and it has been told beautifully in a forthcoming book which we might touch on a little bit later but mm. dick said to ken well we want something for the kids and there was an agent in london called cyril berlin who was acting on um ken Brodjak's behalf and being in london cyril berlin was seeing what was happening in 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 the uk with the with the beatles rise and He wrote to Ken Brodziak and said, look, you know, there's this band out here called the Beatles that might do something in Australia eventually. If you'd be ever interested, I would be interested to try and, you know, negotiate that. Ken just wrote back to Cyril Berlin and said, look, I'm coming over next month to do my usual, um, you know, shopping for acts. i I'll talk to you then. Mm -hmm. So when Ken got over to London... It wasn't Ken asking about the Beatles, but when he got offered a list of names from a promoter called Arthur Howes, which was where Brodziak was meeting that day on the 5th of July, the Beatles' name was on the list, and so was Jerry and the Pacemakers. And Ken had often said when he was alive that he, he had heard the name The Beatles somewhere in the background, but he never ever credited. But he didn't them. know who they were, did he? No. Cyril, he didn't have a clue who they were. No. He'd never heard their record. Never heard the record. No. But he had heard the name, and that was because in May 1963, his agent in London, Cyril Berlin, had mentioned their name and thought they would be a good thing. And Dick Lean wanted a teenage act. So the long and short of it is... What, he booked them on... Both.
1: Hang on, he booked them on spec. In a,
0: in a sense, this is the how it happened. He, mm. he, he literally said, look, I can't take them both, or I can't take any... I, I'll, I'll come back to you. That night, he rang back to Melbourne, he spoke to Dick Lane and said, look, you know, we've been offered some young groups and Dick Lane said, well, who have we got, Ken? He goes, well, we've got the Beatles or Jerry and the Pacemakers and Dick Lane said, well, who the hell are they? And then Rod's said, well, I don't know. So, you know <laughs> it was through Dick Lane asking Bruce Stewart, a 3DB mm. disc jockey who was using the festival hall on Sundays for free to host Rock and Roll Concerts as a fundraiser for the Royal Children's Hospital. Mm -hmm. Dick Lane went and asked Bruce Stewart on the Sunday, look, we've been offered this band, the Beatles or Jerry and the Pacemakers, go out and ask the kids, the the audience, when you're in, in, you know, emceeing between bands, ask the kids who they'd like. So Bruce Stewart asked the kids, got a bit of applause for Jerry and the Pacemakers, got a little bit more for the Beatles, and he he advised Dick Lane that he thought the Beatles, he'd heard of them being a 3db disc Mm -hmm. jockey. They were charting in on 3db charts. He gave the word to Dick Lane that they could be a good thing. And Dick Lane rang Ken back and told him, we'll take the Beatles. He'll take him for a week if New Zealand take him for a week. Kerry Jodian in New Zealand. So it was Dick Lane's instigation that he would take them. and (laughs) They would split the cost of transport with carriage. And there was a verbal agreement made that that Monday, essentially now, verbal agreement with Arthur Howes, the promoter, who was um, mm-hmm. we're offering Ken Brods, uh, offering Brian Epstein's bands at the time.
1: At, by the time June comes around when they're, they're touring, I mean, the Beatles yeah. are just massively mega. Uh, oh, and, yeah. and you'd think, you know, <laughs> why would they have ever agreed to honour this <laughs> This Well,
0: this is the this, way of this the world yeah, yeah. Honourable people. So yeah. Brian Epstein was an honourable man. Yeah. Of course, the terms changed. It was a verbal agreement. They hadn't inked anything, hadn't signed a contract. But in those days, men like Ken Brodzek, Dick Lean, Cyril Berlin, and Brian Epstein, too, whilst he was younger, they were man, men of their word. And that was the way of business. If you shook your hand on it, yeah. that was that was a deal. And it wasn't something nowadays that wouldn't last two minutes. But no, no. whilst the rate was offered at thousand pounds sterling per week. By the time the Beatles were contracted in in December, the rate had gone up to a massive two and a (laughs) half thousand pounds sterling per week. But which was pittance relatively to the, what the Beatles were commanding then. Sure. The Tell me, got...
1: how did Adelaide get on the, because on the, on
0: the, I mean, here is, with, yeah. with due respect, uh,
1: and we love our Adelaide distance, but I mean, yep. with the due respect, at the, at the time, Adelaide was not exactly a major metropolis, and uh, you know, how, no. how did they get on the radar?
0: Oh, well, I think that's exactly right. Adelaide were just sick of being bypassed. Uh, stadiums didn't have a venue in Adelaide. Mm. So it tended to be not front of mind for Dick Lane and stadiums because they, they used to have to hire other venues for their own acts. Um, it wasn't economic to, within the week that Australia was going to have them and carriage Odeon taking for a week. It was Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. They would go over to New Zealand. Adelaide just wasn't going to take it this time. I've got a letter in front of me from Bob Francis from Radio Station 5AD. Now, Bob was the voice of the teenage he movement was, on yeah. radio. yeah. And he has um, just realised that your company will not be bringing the boys to our city. So this is a letter dated the 31st of January 1964 to Ken Brodziak, and he's uh, bestowing the virtues that Roy Orbison showed to at Australia, uh, the reception in Adelaide Airport was great—the uh, the greatest they'd seen in all of Australia. Both shows held at Centennial Hall were sellouts, with a few hundred allowed in for standing room. So Bob Francis is sort of trying to, you know, say, "Hey, hang on, we've got something going on over here too." Brodziak didn't have room in the itinerary; basically, he he couldn't do Adelaide as well as Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and share it with with New Zealand. Hmm. And he didn't have a big venue over there. Big venues in Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide didn't have one. So um, Brodziak sort of wrote back to Bob Francis and said, look, you know, I'll go back to London and see what I can do. The upshot was ultimately that uh, a fellow by the name of Ron Tremaine stepped in. Ron Tremaine, being in Adelaide, was really heading up the youth movement. He ran uh, the Princeton Club. And he, made it,
1: and he made it happen.
0: He made it really happen. Mm, he yeah. was the power broker. He was a 23 year old man, <laughs> he had the business acumen of, you know, Fantastic. Brodziak and Dick Lean put together Fantastic. almost. You know, it's quite amazing. Yeah,
1: it's a great story. Um, it's, it is a great story and a great history as well, yeah. uh, Greg. And I know you've, um, I know. I know you're you're sitting on a mine of stuff there as well. There's a
0: lot of stuff, yeah. But no, essentially, but... it it was it, they they got two days added to the itinerary. Yep. They put Adelaide on first, but Adelaide paid real money. They didn't pay the pittance that was signed up to him. To
1: <laughs> and they went nuts that's there. Where, yeah. That's where
0: Ron Tremaine really stepped in because he was related to somebody that worked at John Martin's stores, and John Martin's took his, took this up as an opportunity for they them. They went
1: nuts there yeah. as well. And they,
0: they, they wrote a blank cheque. Good on you. Greg,
1: terrific to talk. It was fun times. Thanks for that. Yes, no See you. the Beatles in Australia. Thank you. And boy, we did. Yeah, we loved them.
0: You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.